Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. I'd like to begin our program with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. Jesus stood on the top of a hill near an olive tree. The sun was beating down unmercifully. There were beads of perspiration on his forehead, and his palms were wet with sweat. He wiped his cheek and said to Peter, It is so hot. We must rest. Peter acknowledged the heat with a sigh. As they rested upon the earth, a young man came and said, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus answered, Yes. May I, may I help you? The young man looked at Jesus and said sarcastically, I thought you were a strong man. Why are you sitting? Are you weak and tired? Jesus responded, tired, yes, weak, no. There is so much to be done in this city below. The young man sat down and beside Jesus and Peter and said, there is a woman in the village who pines for her husband. All she does is weep and cry out. It is discouraging, Master. What can I tell her to help her? I have told her to shut up. I've ignored her, and yet her weeping and wailing still fill my ears. What can I do to silence her, to make her feel better? The young man paused for a while and then said, My wife and I lost our only son. She too pines, but a tear never falls from her eyes. Jesus said we all pine in different ways. Sorrow must touch everyone's life upon the earth. No one is free from it. Then he looked down and said, One must be understanding, and his ears must be open to the needs of others. Go to the woman, express your sorrow, and let her speak of her sorrow. If no one listens to her, she will continually repeat her story out loud to no one. But those who listen to her will be blessed. Jesus then continued, You must comfort your wife, even though she asks not to be comforted, for she holds much sorrow in her heart. It is wrong not to cry. It is too hard upon the body, and the tears still well up within where no one sees them. Then Jesus looked down and across at the hills and said, There is much beauty around us, and much love from the Father. Man and woman 
must learn to comfort each other, for the Father is with us in spirit. He silently speaks to us that we must comfort one another with words, with compassion, and yes, by giving of ourselves, for the pain of death and illness will touch all of us. And Jesus wept. Our guest this evening writes in her most recent book of, of many books, this one titled Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five, in the middle of the story of Lazarus's resurrection, is the shortest verse in the Bible. The verse markings in our modern Bibles weren't added until around the 16th century, and the average verse in the Bible was around 25 words in length. Why, then, did a French printer in the 16th century single out this particular verse to have only two words? Perhaps because they are noteworthy words. Perhaps these words struck that Frenchman as he prepared his Greek New Testament for printing. These words strike me too. Jesus, the Son of God, who claimed to be one with the Father in heaven, wept. Our sovereign Lord, creator of the world, cried. When I read these words in John eleven thirteen, I can't help but notice the context. Jesus is about to raise to life his friend Lazarus, who had died just days before. In fact, this chapter indicates that Jesus deliberately waited until Lazarus died to return to his friend. Jesus planned to do more than heal him from his sickness, which he had done for others many times before. He planned it to show his authority over death itself. Jesus was about to resolve everyone's sorrow in the biggest way possible that day. Yet when faced with the grief of those around him, Jesus wept. He felt the pain of those around him and mourned with them. Jesus knew he was going to heal Lazarus. He knew he was about to put things right for that little family. We too, who believe in Jesus' name, have faith that he will make right every hard circumstance in our life. In this life or the next, I have full confidence that God will redeem and restore all things, that he will heal all sickness, that he will right all wrongs, that he will restore all that is broken still. Jesus wept, and I do too. The guest of our guest this evening and the author of those words is Wendy Alsop. She began her public ministry as a deacon of women's theology and teaching at her church in Seattle. Uh, she now lives on her family farm in South Carolina, where she teaches math at a local community college and is a mother to her two boys. And she writes at theologyforwomen.org and gospelcenteredwoman.com. And she's the author of several books, including Is the Bible Good for Women and Practical Theology? women. Wendy also welcome to Amplify. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so good to have you. Um, when, when one reads your book to the end, uh, 
we can understand uh, why you say what you do in, in, in the words that, that I have just quoted from the beginning of, of your book when you talk about the fact that you have, you have real hope for the future. You have faith that God will make everything right, that you have full confidence that God will redeem and restore all things, heal all sickness, right all wrongs. He will restore, restore all that is broken, but you put it into context. Still, Jesus wept. And I do too. Tell us a little bit about some of the problems that you've had in your life, some of the suffering, uh, as to why you wrote this this book. Then we we know you you talk in the beginning about widowhood and even unwanted divorce, um, but and you said that they can be viewed like communicable diseases for women, but you've suffered in many ways, haven't you? Yes, and. Um have had a life with a lot of pitfalls um, and a lot of good points, but I've really entered into a particularly dark time um, when my marriage started approaching a divorce that I didn't want. And um, then after going through those circumstances and moving back home to be closer to family support, I was diagnosed with breast cancer as a single mom, which led to uh, one discovery after another and about five surgeries in a two-year period that um, was very debilitating. And it was through those circumstances and trial upon trial that um, the Lord really, well, first, I felt alienated. I felt on the outside looking in. I had been a Christian who, you know, believed in Christian marriage, pursued Christian marriage, was in youth groups encouraging Christian marriage and um, churches trying to shore up Christian marriages. And uh, when divorce approached me, it was not something I wanted, and it made me feel very, very other in uh, my church, despite really, really loving good people in my church. And I would say it's not what they did to me, but it was what went on much more so in my own head. But then with physical suffering on top of it, there's not just the alienation in your head. There's a real alienation just in your circumstances. So I had a lot of long, um, lonely, dark seasons in my head and a number of them in the hospital as well and recovering, um, which I really had to think through whether I was alone Um and the, the, the verse I latched on to is where Jesus told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. Right. And I, I didn't believe I was left as an orphan to navigate it on my own, but I had to work to make the connection between, I think, what, what is true from Scripture versus what was going on in my own head. And you, um, you thought these are the kind of things that you were going to be prepared for, that you were set up for a good life, and you write... The underlying assumption in my youth and college years among youth leaders and my peers at Christian college was that if I went to Bible college, made wise choices while dating, and generally sought God's will for my life, then I would have a foundation for a good, stable life serving God. I would be in the warm house with other happy Christians around the warm fire of God's love and Christian fellowship. Didn't quite happen that way, though, did it? No, it didn't for me, and it was 
as hard as it was for me, it was really good for me to face it head on and then to realize how suffering really is um, the norm of the Christian walk, uh, not the exception. And um, that was a good thing for me to get a hold of. Right. And then you wondered, uh, what what did I do to cause this? Why has God turned away from me? Uh, joy and happiness seem forever out of your reach. You can only see the happiness of those around you who weren't suffering in the same way. Uh, you felt like a pariah, and I can't quite feel what that means myself, although I can imagine. And people sincerely cared for you physically and spiritually, but you still felt alienation. So what is the image of God that you have that sustained you? Well, it really was um, the pictures in Scripture that God left us. I I think really long-term, it was realizing how much of God's inspired Scripture are given to us to equip us to persevere in suffering. And, you know, just the language of around around Christ as the suffering servant, the man of sorrows who was well acquainted with grief. And we don't have um, a Savior who is un, unfeeling of our circumstances, but one who is tempted like we were, yet without sin. You know, the Bible goes to great lengths when you when you finally are willing to watch it and see it, to to prepare us for suffering. Um, the story of Job, which, you know, they say Job was likely the first book actually put to paper. And it really struck me to think that the first story that God inspired to be put on paper was the story of the man at the worst point of anyone in life and how God I mean, it's just a story of suffering. It's just the story of a man coming to terms with all that was wrong in his life and still finding hope in God. And maybe the image of God is just that he actually transcends suffering, that mm-hmm. God is bigger and better than our suffering. And, and at the end of the day, in my own life, I think that's what I've walked away with is that when you think of suffering as bad as it can be, that the beauty and character of God is so much better and makes it worth persevering. And and that beauty of him means nothing if we minimize the suffering, but it's in contrast to how horrible the suffering is, his beauty and his ability to turn ashes into joy or, you know, to, to pull us out of the ash heap and stand us back up on our feet and give us hope for a future is just beautiful and miraculous. Um, so I guess that's how I would answer your question. Right. And uh, you write that you believe this book will reinforce the real ways we find community and suffering with others in the body of Christ living and the deceased, the dead. Uh, but for a long season, that feeling of alienation endured. I felt outside. I felt other. 
uh, an orphan left on my own to navigate a path I didn't understand. And then the image that um, I know that you've talked about so often through your book is you can imagine Jesus wrapping his arms around you and you feel yourself firmly in his grasp and therefore in his protection. Yeah, I had this idea from Paul's words in Philippians of um, Jesus having him, you know, that um, to know him as he had been known, that Jesus had plucked Paul up out of disaster, had, but, but, and Jesus had a hold of Paul the whole time, but Paul wanted to know Christ the way Christ had him. Paul wanted to take hold of Christ as Christ had hold of him, and the image that came to mind was Jesus riding into a war, disaster, and plucking Paul up, but Paul kind of held tightly under Jesus's arm, but bouncing around in the seat, kind of flailing, still thinking he was in trouble, and the image I had was turning in Jesus's embrace and embracing him in return, and then the ride is so much smoother when you believe he has you and you turn in his embrace and it may be crying in his arms, weeping against his breast, but instead of flailing in his arms, it's turning into his embrace. And for me, that mental image was really helpful. Uh, I can certainly understand why uh, you um, one times wondered why you crying and why should I pray Suffering seems to alienate us from others. You felt like you were on the outside looking in, but your your greatest pain was the powerful emotions that your two boys had to bear. Yeah, and I think often for us, a lot of our greatest pains are watching those we love the most in pain. Um, and those two are ones we have to trust our God with. We have to believe that I've had to believe that God loves my children more than I do, that God has a good plan for them as he has a good plan for me. And I've had to not just hope for myself, but hope in God for them as well. Um, yeah, it is definitely the greatest pain. And yeah. I think a lot of your listeners can identify with that. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm sure they are. There's no doubt in my mind that's why I invited you, because I know that uh, yeah, I could do a program like this uh, many times during the course of the year, because there's always people who are experiencing uh, pain for the first time or multiple pain and and want to know what does it mean to be in Jesus. Uh, and suffering can change your personality as it did you from extroverted uh, to introverted. And uh, we're going to take a break in just a minute, but you write, because Jesus well understood the grief and pressure we bear when suffering, he is able to nourish us in the temptations that go along with suffering and suffering that goes along with temptations. To uh, amplify where we are speaking this evening with uh, Wendy Alsop, talking, uh, who, who's dropped off the line for some reason. Uh, we need to get her back on the line. Not quite happening. we got all kinds of little things happening here in the studio tonight. Uh, we're still here, though. We're going to be here. Everything's fine. 
um, she dropped off. She may have. Sometimes people get confused when I tell them at the top of the hour, uh, we'll give them the uh, uh, the option of uh, not staying on the air because it's about ten minutes, and we call them back. And she may well think the same thing is is true here. Uh, but um, we've been talking about a book called Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. And if we haven't felt that way ourselves, then we probably know someone indeed uh, who who has. And uh, I, I, she felt like um, I was mentioned before the, the beginning of the program or at the start of the program that she felt like she was on the outside looking in and and uh, as we often know we're worried more about the pain that others feel than we are about uh, our own pain um, in this case it was her it was her two boys uh, for which she felt the worst pain and and so um, that's that pain is sometimes worse uh, for us than it is for for anyone else so um, that's and and what she does then is there a lot of a lot of places where she refers to in in scripture and uh in scripture uh she talks about uh Christ in in Philippians and also talks of from 2 Corinthians uh Psalm 69 and she reflects on Psalm 73 so we're trying to to talk about uh, some of those things with her uh because whenever you're you're you are you're paying attention to scripture god is speaking uh to you and there's so much that we can learn from the scriptures from the bible and uh that that uh, we've got wendy back now and and that's the way she feels it's it's the word of god that has got her through all of these these problems and she knows what it means to be in in jesus and uh wendy how can knowing the suffering that Jesus went through intimately help us. And, and one of the, the quotations you use is Philippians 3.10. Well, you know, the whole, the whole book is about, it's for those feeling alienated, and there's just something inherently sweet, and there's a fellowship to know that he understands that he is not sitting at a high point looking down on us. Um, and even, even though he condescended to live with us as on, on earth, he doesn't, it's not a condescension to identify with us. So it was sweet and meant so much to me to read of his compassion. And, you know, even just the word compassion is really beautiful to study its etymology because the com is from Latin for with and passio, mm-hmm. you know, means suffering. Yes. So it's to suffer with someone. So every time he had compassion, the book of Luke in particular is filled with these moments where the Bible says, and, and he, he saw them and he had compassion on them. He entered their suffering. He wasn't sitting as an outside observer. He was sitting with them as one who felt it with them. And this is why, you know, he says, you know, come to me, those who are weary, and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you, for it's easy and my burden is light, because he carries it with us. He even carries it for us. Um, And so just the fact that he knows, 
he knows it, and he is not an outside observer. He enters into it with us, so we are literally not alone as we bear these weights. Right, and his love's not going to let us go, right? I mean, it's much like you're not you're not about to let your love go for your boys. Uh, God is not going to let his love let us go, uh, because Jesus understood his own death and suffering, uh, didn't he? Even though you couldn't fathom, you mentioned, you write about how joy could infiltrate her pain like Paul did. Well, maybe we can't exper- experience some of the pain of others, but we're looked to ex- to try to understand our own pain with the help of God so that we need at times in life, don't we, to take up our cross of suffering and follow Jesus. Yes, and one of the really important things I realize is how much um, in Scripture you have these situations, maybe Psalm, a Psalm of David where he's crying out to God, and then by the end it resolves. But in real time, the Bible actually gives us time and encouragement to sit in the anguish. Like you don't have to immediately get from the the cancer diagnosis to joy. Yes. You can have hope that maybe one day down the road I will get to the point where I have sincere joy or where I really do see God at work and I really am confident. But it's also okay to lament, to sit in sackcloth and ashes and really lament. And that was one of the things that the story of Job gave me it was just interesting to me how many chapters are Job struggling to make sense. And even though the beauty of the end, the, the resolution at the end is beautiful, it's only like three chapters. And instead, there's like 10 times as many chapters of Job struggling. So we want to cling to hope. We look for hope. We want hope. We want joy. We want peace. But... It takes a while to get there, and what I really want to encourage folks who are suffering is to let Scripture be your guide. Like, you don't have to open up Scripture and find the verse to put on the happy face. Instead, Scripture walks with us during the darkest times and gives us words of lament and gives us the freedom. It gives us the language to wrestle with God righteously. You know, that was a big, big help to me. I didn't want to accuse God. I didn't want to betray my faith, but I was really, really struggling. And it's neat how much Scripture preserved for us is lament and wrestling with God. And even Job's words, I mean, he said some pretty uh, stark things to God. And in the end, God answers him, but he doesn't condemn him. And he even still affirms Job as a righteous man at the end. And so it's just such a gift. I needed the book of Job to help me get from um, my questions and my, I don't know, almost a feeling of betrayal by God to allow the the suffering upon suffering. Um, But I needed that long lament and wrestling from Job to get to the place where I could then receive the end of Job where God says, I am God. And Job confesses, yes, Lord, you are God, and I submit to you. 
but it, you don't get there overnight. You don't get there immediately. Mm-hmm. There's a long road when you get that kind of devastating news, and Scripture gives us the permission to walk it. We don't have to try to just zoom to the end like so we can be a good Christian with a happy face on. Um, and that's, that's, to me, the gift of Scripture in it. I would uh, tell you that probably um, the, the book of Job has always fascinated me, not that I've suffered a great deal in my, in my life. I think we've all had suffering uh, at times, people we've loved who have died, et cetera. Um, right. But it, it just, it's a book that speaks to us, I think, as human beings. And I have more underlined during this part of your book than anywhere else uh, for any other place in the book. Um, one would be, I like the book of Job better as a help for someone else who was suffering, offering me encouragement that I could then offer them. I did not like being able to identify personally with Job, particularly in the piling of serious trial upon serious trial, each with their own deep weights of grief. In the final chapters of Job, God speaks firmly to him, and Job submitted to God. I wasn't there yet, but Job was exactly the companion I needed to get to that point, which is the miracle of God's grace and mercy through his word. And you carry that theme throughout your book. Yeah, I really, I mean, I I don't want to keep saying it over and over again, but the, I, I hope folks will realize the miracle of Scripture, that it really does walk with us through these worst points, because, you know, all of our suffering really, at its most basic level, is us struggling with the weight of the results of the fall. And we have a few chapters in perfection in Genesis, but so much of Scripture is people rustling under the weight of the fall. And so there is way more Scripture to walk with us at these hard points than many of us realize, than I realized. I think I I focus on different sets of Scripture, but my suffering caused me to see a lot of Scripture in a new way that I had not really thought about not thought about that way before, but there's so much of it, and and so we're not alone. Right, and the appendix to your book is is excellent. Also, uh, you summarize a whole lot, and we'll, we'll, before the program's over, we'll talk about those main points. But another one, another lesson you want to be able to teach to people is that you did not bring this on yourself. Right. Uh, And, you know, of course, there are consequences to bad choices. You know, if you rob Mm -hmm. a bank, there are going to be consequences to it. But um, not all suffering is because we made a bad choice. All suffering is because of the weight of sin in the world and the fall of man. But it's not all because... Um, of the individual choices we made. I didn't get breast cancer because of individual choices I made. And, um, you know, there's always two two folks who sin in a marriage, but I 
did not end up in divorce because I wanted a divorce. So, and yet I found myself, maybe just from my upbringing, really second guessing what had I done to get myself to this place? What did I do? Where did I drop the ball? What did I do wrong? Where did I make the wrong choice? And, you know, it's vexing because if I could figure out where I had dropped the ball or made the wrong choice or done the wrong thing or set myself up for failure, then maybe I could figure out how not to do it again. But right. in the end, I had to, and Job was a good guide for me in this. And Joseph, there's a lot of guides in Scripture for this, but Job in particular, not all suffering is because you sinned and you are wearing the consequences of your sin. And now for a lot of people, that probably is intuitive, but it wasn't for me. I, I had a very conservative, um, fundamentalist upbringing and there was a lot of hellfire and brimstone, and I was an earnest teenage Christian, and I wanted to do right, and I've always examined myself closely, and I've tried to do the right thing. And so, and some of it, I think, is um, being a control freak, you know, if mm -hmm. making the right choices helps me avoid bad consequences, and so help me, I want to make the right choice. And I also had this feeling, I don't want to get in this situation again, so I want to figure out what mistakes did I make, because I don't want this to happen again to me. But in the end, I had to submit to God's sovereign hand in my life like Job did, and believe that, you know what, Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if Jesus really died on the cross for me, and forgave me of my sins, then God disciplines me, he disciples me, he trains me in righteousness, but all of my punishment is born on the cross. And so I, we're freed from the second guessing of ourselves, you know, what did the rich person do down the street to earn their money? What did the poor person do to have it all taken away? Well, that's not, that's not the culture that God has created for us in Christ. And it's really valuable to be freed from it so that you can just, in faith, you know, I want to know, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do I have sin to confess? I sin against my kids in particular, and I need to confess my sins and ask for God's forgiveness. But I am not bearing these weights of suffering because God is punishing me for my sins. Christ bore that on the cross for me. And instead, I can, I can be trained in righteousness, I can grow in Christ, but I am not, I don't have to think of it like self-flagellation where you're beating yourself up um, over something, which, and for me, I didn't even, I could never even pinpoint what it was, which was really vexing. So it was really important for me to, to really think through what did Christ do for me on the cross? What does it mean that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ? And how does that apply to how I mentally deal with this guilt I feel for I don't know what? Mm -hmm. And a couple of other points that you make uh, within this particular chapter you're talking about now, learning to lament, uh, and you use the book of Job uh, as, a, as a good example uh, to teach us is that uh, suffering exposed Job's utter need before God. His righteousness was not was not enough, and that God is no stranger to those 
who believe in Christ, and then you write, what dark, depressing words Job utters. Quote, stop it, God, leave me alone. Maybe I can have a few smiles before the darkness overtakes me for good. Close quote. And then you write, I cry as I write these words, for I have felt the same. Leave me alone, God, and maybe I can make a little peace for me and my children on my own. What is it that you're reflecting there? Oh, you make me cry as you read it again. I always cry because that was a dark, dark moment. That's after I got the cancer diagnosis, and I was just getting on my feet again. And also after I found out it was in my lymph node, and then they, I found out after that I had a, a big abdominal tumor. Um, and so I had this a kick kick when you're down, kick when you're down, kick when you're down. And I have loved God since youth and pursued him and he's comforted me and been my father in heaven. And I just had this moment where I just wanted him to leave me alone. I don't, I don't want to grow if this is what I have to do. I don't want just stop. Just leave me alone. I can't do this. And, um, you know, probably the sweetest thing is that um, he knew and he endured with me and he gave me the scripture to walk with me through it. And then he continued walking me through those deep, dark emotions and eventually leading me to the end of the book of Job where he comes out. And those words at the end of the book of Job sound very strong and maybe harsh, but they were what I needed. I had to submit to him. I had to trust him. I had to believe in the end that he was good and he knew what he was doing. And um, I'm thankful for the companionship that Job gave me. I'm thankful that God gave us the book of Job so that I had a friend to lead me through those deep, dark emotions until I could see it for myself. In fact, you spend two chapters on the book of uh, Job, and one is more powerful than uh, the next. You you write the fact that I didn't understand what was happening and couldn't see the path forward didn't mean that God wasn't doing good things and for me through it. Those nightly walks staring at the sky soothed my soul and pointed me to these truths. Now, it wasn't just Job who accompanied me in my suffering, but God himself was answering me now, too. And you speak about God's words as being counterintuitive, that we don't always understand what God is doing. Uh, you make the point that uh, Job was, was no fool, and at one point, you just wanted God to leave you alone. But then, as God embraced you, you wanted to turn and embrace God. And you discovered at some point that you were now cancer-free, that you had various tumors, and uh, they weren't cancerous. And you point out very beautifully and very powerfully that you have scars on your body 
but more painful scars on your soul because you still have chronic illnesses. And you make the point to let us know that you remain dependent on daily manna from God until you see Jesus face to face. Now, I said a lot there in order to get it all in because I have so much that I want to say. We just have about a minute before we need to take our next break. But uh, is there something there from what I've just said, pulling from your book, that you'd like to amplify on just a little bit more? Yes, I think the concept of manna um, and how it was given in Scripture and then that Jesus is the bread of life is an important one um, because it was given daily, um, not weekly or monthly, and we need that kind of sustenance daily, too. We need the bread of life, Jesus, daily, and um, you can't stock up on faith, I found, like I, I could receive encouragement, but I could descend very quickly back to the place where I needed encouragement again, and that's not wrong. That is perfectly okay to have to go back multiple times a day because you get discouraged over and over again. We need God daily. We need the bread of life daily. And um, let me read us out to our next break that um, you write, uh, as I expand on and amplify what you just said, I've had to work hard to not give in to the temptation to numb the pain in my ongoing losses with alcohol, food, mindless amusement, or other unhealthy coping mechanisms. God exists in the middle of these circumstances, and he rewards those who diligently seek him. 